uh, kick off a new sermon series, uh, I have a question that's going to set up this, uh, this series, or at least this message in the series. So I want you to take a moment, take 30 seconds or take 20 seconds. Think of a time in your life when you were set up for success. Doesn't have to be a job, just in any circumstance in life, you, you feel like you're really set up for success. And then once you've thought of that, I want you to think of the opposite. Think about a time in your life when you felt like you were set up for failure. How many of you have experienced both of those in your life? (laughs) Pretty much all of us. When we have been set up for success in some circumstance in our life, It's usually because someone has thought ahead. Someone has anticipated potential challenges that may occur and has prepared resources to address those challenges should they arise. Am I right? Usually when we've been set up for success, somebody says, if this happens, here's what you can do. And you're like, oh, good. That's that's helpful. Usually when we're set up for success, there's buffer, there's flexibility, there's variability in our task. But Because nobody's perfect, right? And we know that things won't go perfectly all the time, and so we should anticipate that. But when we're set up to fail, somebody may know that there are significant challenges that could arise, but there's no warning. There's no resourcing. There's no equipping for that possibility. Somebody may know that things probably won't go perfectly, but they do little to guard against failure. And when this happens, I feel like when this happens in my life or when this happens in the lives of people that I care about, I feel like a deep sense of injustice. Like, people should not be set up to fail. That's not right. In college, I I knew a young man, I'm going to call him Steve. Steve was really gifted. He was outgoing, like a people person, and... He was a very good communicator. Steve came to Christ through a drug rehabilitation program after a very dark period in his time, um, a period in his life of addiction. And in this dark period of addiction, he ended up hurting himself, hurting his family, hurting others, and he spent some time in prison uh, as a result of that. But by the time that I met Steve, he struck me as just like a clean-cut young man, really disciplined. Um, His gifts made room for him in college, and he was elevated, sort of given leadership responsibilities. And there was just one thing that kind of concerned me about Steve, and it was observing the way that he practiced his faith. You know, living in the dorms with him, I got to see kind of a full picture of his life, and there didn't seem to be any room for error or flexibility in his faith. Uh, It felt like he practiced his faith out of a sense of compulsion, like a need to uh, keep the rules, to keep control over his life. And this concerned me as I watched his life. It felt a little bit like watching a slow-motion train wreck that you can't stop. I was like, this is going to end badly. But his rule-keeping was applauded by, like, everybody in his life. They all thought that was really great. And they held him up as a model of self-discipline and, and devotion for everybody else. But I never wanted to emulate Steve. I, 
I felt like at any moment, something could disrupt Steve's strictly structured faith, and Steve could snap. That's what I felt like. But Steve went on to graduate. He went on to get married, started a family, landed a great ministry position at a large mega church, um, teaching uh, youth and young adults. And from all outward appearances, you'd say Steve's story was a success story. This is a great example of, of the, you know, the success of drug rehabilitation. And I was genuinely proud of Steve. In fact, some people knew Steve, they didn't know me. And I'd, I'd say, yeah, I used to go to college with Steve. Oh, you did? But for years, you know, that sort of faith compulsion continued. And I still was like, oh, this really deeply concerns me. So, surprise, not surprised at all, years later, um, I learned that Steve had relapsed and went back into that dark period of, of addiction. And he also landed back in prison, which resulted in him losing the ministry position and eventually also his marriage. Steve's faith was like a grasping for control. He was trying to hold on for dear life, hoping that things would not go wrong. And he felt like, if I, if I don't do these things, and I do these things, I won't relapse. But soon, it all came crumbling down. When I think about stories like Steve's, I get, first I get really frustrated, and then I just get really sad, deeply sad. Because we all inevitably face challenges in our lives. We all inevitably face doubt, questions about our faith, Sometimes we even face real trauma in our lives, real hardship too. Jesus told his disciples this. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. And if we're truly following Jesus, I think we can expect no different. When, not if, challenges arise in our lives, I want us in this room to discover that our faith is resilient, that it can stand up to these challenges. Recent research has discovered that resiliency isn't an internal attribute that some people possess from birth and other people don't. Resiliency is actually something that is developed by being in community with others who are equipping them. That's how resilience, resiliency is developed. And that is what the body of Christ is for. We are gifts to one another for our mutual equipping. That's what scripture says. So for the next four weeks, I'm really excited to kick off uh, a sermon series leading up into the season of Lent. So for the next four weeks until Lent, we're going to be in this series called Resilient, Following Jesus for Life. And this week, I want to begin by talking about the difference between Christian faith and magical thinking, or magical faith, which is a whole other way of conceptualizing faith. But before we look at the first text this morning, would you pray with me for this message? God, I thank you for all the many ways that you are at work in our lives. You're at work healing us, transforming us, calling us to serve in your kingdom. And I thank you for the ways that you are at work within us collectively as a fellowship of Jesus' disciples in this neighborhood, in this city, in this nation. I pray that you would strengthen our faith today. 
with wisdom from your word and your spirit as we seek to faithfully follow Jesus and to be his witnesses in the world. I pray that you would disabuse us of any folk religion or any false messages from the world around us that would set us up for failure when the inevitable troubles of this world intersect our lives. I pray that your spirit would illuminate the scriptures to our hearts and minds this morning and that you'd use me to equip your people so that our faith might be resilient faith. And all this we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Everybody said amen. All right, so the first text we're going to look at this morning is from the book of Acts. Here's the context. Context is this is after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Jesus has commissioned his disciples to go into all the world, into all the ethnos, all the people groups of the world, and make disciples. And Acts is that record, record of the spread of the Jesus movement throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. And this passage is going to take place in Samaria. Samaria is made famous by a parable of Jesus called the Good Samaritan. Remember, Jews hated Samaritans, Samaritans hated Jews. Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Well, this passage takes place in Samaria, and Peter is going to encounter uh, a Samaritan. So we're going to pick it up in verse 9 of chapter 8. You can turn to it in your translation of the Bible, or you can look on the screen behind me. Starting in verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon, who practiced sorcery in the city, and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he, had amazed, he amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He said, give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hopes that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. Now, this is really frustrating to me and sad. But I'm afraid that there are a lot of Christians today whose faith is not all that different from Simon the Sorcerer. They have a magical view of faith. Their view of faith is that faith is a means to an end. They want the fruit of the Spirit, like 
love, joy, peace, patience, all that good stuff, right? But they don't want to plant the seeds, till the soil, care for those seeds, water them, and wait for them to grow. They want those pills from the Jetsons. Remember those pills from the Jetsons? You could just pop a pill, like a whole meal. Or there's like a machine, you know, where you push a button and the whole meal pops out. That's the kind of, that's the kind of fruit some people want. They want instant fruit. They want the power to wield faith like a tool at their disposal. Their attitude is basically like, what do I have to do to get this power? Pray a prayer? Pay my tithes? Believe the right doctrines? What's the magic formula? Magical thinking is a quick and easy fix to all your problems. So my daughter loves this movie, Descendants. Anybody ever seen Descendants? Okay. (laughs) Callie's seen it. Okay. So Descendants, I'm not going to give you the whole background, bore you to tears. Um, Basically, Descendants is about the children of fairy tale characters, right? The good ones and the bad ones. And they're learning how to live together in harmony, okay? So the daughter of a villain falls in love with the daughter of a king or something like that, right? I'm trying not to roll my eyes too hard. But 100% of the conflict between the daughter of the villain and the daughter of the king is over magic because the daughter of the villain is the daughter of some uh, famous witch. Do you know which one? Maleficent. Okay, so she's got this spell book. It's her mother's spell book, and she's really tempted to use the spell book all the time. And so at one point, she uh, forgets that she's scheduled a romantic picnic with her boyfriend, the other character, right? And she's like, oh, no, he's not going to love me because I forgot this picnic, right? Uh, so, um, so she whips out the spell book, and she turns PB&J sandwiches into, like, a full gourmet meal, right? And then she gets found out somehow, and she has to confess, and, you know, it's a big fight. And then she's tempted again to, like, use a spell to make him forget the whole thing. It's like, oh. But see, this is like us. This is just like us. We have this, like, propensity, this tendency to want to find some magic formula when things get difficult and just have a quick fix to it. You know, what can I, what can I say, what can I do to make this go away? Instead of sometimes doing the difficult but necessary thing we know we need to do. We sometimes have a magical view of faith. Uh, This was the problem with my friend Steve's faith. He thought that as long as he followed this strict regimen of prayers and Bible reading and, you know, everything else, all the other rules that he followed, he he wouldn't relapse. He thought that there was a formula to his faith that he could use to protect himself and be right with God. But when the formula stopped working, he relapsed. And he experienced the frailty and the inadequacy of his magical thinking. But I don't want you to think that magical thinking is just a problem for rule followers. It's actually an equal opportunity problem for all of us. (laughs) We all have this temptation. Uh, It can infect our thinking whether we are traditional-minded or whether we are progressive-minded. I've heard traditionally-minded people say things like, I know I'm right with God because I pay my tithes, for example. Or, I know I'm right with God because I prayed the sinner's prayer sometime way back when. Or I know I'm right with God because uh, 
of some other rule that they followed. But then I've heard progressive-minded folks say similar things. Like, I know I'm right with God because I care for the homeless. Or I know I'm right with God because I voted for the right candidate. And it's all magical thinking. Magical thinking tempts us to think that there's a quick and easy formula for faith, for salvation, for oneness with God. It's like presto savo, abracadabra, hocus pocus, now you're saved, right? This magical way of conceptualizing faith can actually lead to some really serious trauma, some really serious baggage and pain. I've been in Christian circles where this magical thinking has been used like a weapon against people. People are going through some of the most difficult, hard times in their lives, the the dissolution of a marriage, the loss of a child, uh, terminal illness, and people will say things to them like, you just don't have enough faith. It's like, ah, it's like stab me with a knife and twist it. I mean, I'm already suffering, and you're just making it worse. They kind of treat faith like fairy dust. It's like, do you have enough fairy dust to sprinkle on this problem? Why don't you have enough fairy dust? And that's painful. You know, it's, it's blaming the victim. Uh, this gets at something that's absolutely critical to resilient faith. What kind of picture of God is in the background of that type of faith? The picture of God that it paints in my mind, I don't know about you, but it's like, God would really love to heal your daughter with leukemia, but you didn't have enough faith, so God let her die. And it's like, what? What kind of God is that? Is that a bureaucrat in the sky who's counting the beans of faith like, oh, not enough beans, faith beans. Sorry. Who wants to worship that God? It's not a God I want to worship. And I know too many people who've had this magical view of faith, and when their lives hit some kind of hardship or some kind of tragedy, they were telling themselves, I don't have enough faith. It's my fault. And their faith just shipwrecked, like ran into the rocks. And they just couldn't believe in a God like that, a God that would cause this to happen because they didn't have enough faith. Thankfully, I'm going to turn the corner here, That's not how faith works. To understand how faith, Christian faith, really works, we have to understand a concept that's a little bit foreign to our modern Western world because it's an ancient and Eastern concept. It's the concept behind the Bible word covenant. Now, we use that word a lot more than probably the average Christian does because it's in the name of our church. But most people don't use this word every day. So we're going to look at a passage in the Old Testament, help us understand how this covenant thing works. So I really think this is critical to having a resilient faith. So this is from the book of Genesis, chapter 15, starting in verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my house will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Verse 5. He took him outside and said, Look up at the stars, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
Abram believed the Lord, and he was credited, it was credited to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. I'm skipping down to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give you this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. So this is weird, very weird. Like, I mean, imagine something like this happens today. We would all freak out. Like, this is a weird story. So what does it mean? Well, in the ancient Near East, there was a, a special way that kings would make promises with other kings. Promises of treaties, promises of land, that kind of thing. And the same, same way that kings would make promises with their people with their kingdom. It was called a covenant. And this was the most significant promissory agreement that you could make in the ancient Near East. There was no bureaucratic entity that governed all covenants. When you made a covenant in the ancient Near East, each party in the covenant submits themselves to the other. Each party is essentially saying to the other, I pledge, I pledge to th this to you on my life. That's why you pass through the carcasses of dead animals. Because you're saying, may, may, may I be at like this animal if I break this covenant. So, in this way, God has promised to be faithful to Abraham regardless of whether Abraham is faithful to God. Did you notice that Abraham didn't pass through the carcasses? Only the pot and the torch representing God passed through God says, I'm not going to break this covenant on my life, whether you break it or not. Today we have something called a contract in our culture, right? In American culture. Um, but a contract is fundamentally different from a covenant. Here's how it's different. A contract is mediated by a bureaucratic entity that governs and enforces it called the law. Each party in a contract submits themselves to the law, really, not to the other person. The difference is profound. The difference is trust. In a covenant, it's all about trusting the other person's character, that they're going to uphold their end of the bargain. To this day, marriage is still considered a covenant, even though marriage can be wrapped up in all kinds of legalities too, but it's fundamentally about two people trusting one another. People enter into covenants because they trust each other's character. People enter into contracts because they don't trust each other's character. Christian faith is covenantal. Fundamentally, down to the bottom, covenantal faith. It's about trusting in the character of God. And to be perfectly frank, the only God I trust is the God that looks like Jesus. If God doesn't look like Jesus, I don't trust that God. Jesus, living his life for others, demonstrating radical hospitality, 
welcoming misfits and outcasts and making them family, calling out the people that marginalized them, and giving his life away to demonstrate what love is all about. That's a picture of God that keeps me believing day after day after day. That's a picture of God that keeps me forgiving people that hurt me, keeps me serving, keeps me praying, keeps me loving people that are different from me, which is difficult at times. If we want to have resilient faith, we've got to have a Jesus-looking picture of God. We've got to know that God is for us, that God is with us, and that God is love. In this passage about covenant, Abraham trusted God's character. You know how I know that? Because he questioned God to his face, like, God, you said you were going to give me some kids. I've got no kids. Where are my kids at? you got to trust a God's character to question God like that. Because if Abraham was dealing with Molech or Baal, he probably would have got a lightning bolt instead of a covenant. But all throughout the biblical narrative, God's people who are in covenant with God, they complain to God. They question God. They throw God's words back in God's face like, you said you were going to do this and you didn't do it. Where are you at? That's real relationships. If you've been in any relationship for a long time, you know you have to wrestle. There'll be like times when there's conflict, times when there's disappointment, times when there's a need for forgiveness because there's hurt and there's pain. Real relationships of trust aren't magic. How many of you know that? Real relationships of trust aren't magic. There's no formula. There's no magic words that you can say. I've tried this before, by the way. What, just tell me what to say. Tell me what the right words are to say. There's no right words, you know. <laughs> oh, man, I just wanted a formula. Real relationships require patience, attention, and vulnerability. They're hard at times. Man, being vulnerable is hard. But if you want to have resilient faith, faith that can stand the test of time and the challenges of life, you've got to actively, we've got to actively resist the temptation to find a magical cure, a magical fix. And we've got to actively pursue this covenantal relationship of trust with a God who looks like Jesus. If I'm being perfectly honest with you, this is a temptation I face all the time. If I go through hardships in my life, if I face challenges, there's a voice in my head that says, did you, did you do something wrong? Is this your fault? Did you not do something you were supposed to do? And that's why this is happening? And I think, oh, if I just do that thing or if I don't do that other thing, this will go away. I can fix it. I want to take the reins and take control of my life. And then I hear the voice of the Holy Spirit say, that's not how this works. That's not what this is all about. Trust me. I'm with you through this. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm right here. Covenantal faith is a relationship of trust. And we won't perfect it this side of the resurrection. But it requires us to humble ourselves, admit we failed, learn, grow, yes, make more mistakes, and then learn from those, and keep on trusting. But the part that keeps me in it is knowing that God is more committed to me than I am to him. God has passed through the carcasses. God has said, on my life, I'm committed to this covenant, whether you break it or not. 
Jesus is the proof of that. Jesus is the proof that God is going to be faithful no matter what. Jesus shows us the lengths to which God will go to demonstrate God's love. And all of God's promises through all the covenants are yes and amen in Christ. The way I want to close uh, this message and ground this entire series is in the concrete reality of God's covenant of love with us. Jesus' self-giving love demonstrated on the cross is the concrete proof that God is in this covenant for the long haul. When we come to this table together as one body, we are proclaiming that we understand God's love. We are proclaiming that we, we are entering into this covenant and we are in it for the long haul. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed and his trust was broken and his friends, his friends bailed on him, Jesus shared this meal with his friends. And when he'd given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant. He renewed the covenant with them. He said, this is me showing you how far I will go to demonstrate my love. God cut covenant with us through Jesus. And we enter into that covenant through the cross. If you've placed your trust in Jesus or you want to place your trust in Jesus, then this table is the place to be. And this isn't my table. This isn't Roots Covenant Church's table. This is the Lord's table. So it's open to everyone. Um, Why don't we take a moment and examine our hearts? Actually, allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts. Think about this past week um, or weeks. And think about the ways in which when you have faced challenges, when you have encountered hardships or pain, how has magical thinking crept up into your, your mind and your heart? How have you thought about ways that you could take control and fix it? How have you resisted the covenant of trust? And then ask the Holy Spirit to forgive you first, but also to empower you with grace. Grace to enter into that covenant of trust. Again, this is not something we perfect the side of the resurrection. This is something we're going to keep living into. But we have to continually renew our commitment to the covenant. And then once you're ready, once you feel like you've, uh, you've reached that point, you can come and receive the bread and the cup. I'll be in the front, and then we'll return to our seats, and uh, I think the children are going to join us.